This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for October 17th, 2019. The don't be a tough guy, don't be a fool, I will call you later edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes is chuckling Dickersonianly in Manhattan. Hello, John Dickerson. <laughs> Hello, David. John has his first 60 Minutes piece coming up this weekend. So, GabFest listeners, make sure you check out 60 Minutes on Sunday. So you yeah, can see tune in. Thank John, you, for that plug. Tune in. Tune in plug. And joining us, of course, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, so glad to be here with you both. On today's GabFest, President Trump's shocking abandonment of America's Kurdish allies in Syria and the incredible series of catastrophic events that have unfolded from that. Then who, if anyone, won the fourth Democratic debate? Then we will discuss a fascinating new book about whether meritocracy is destroying the United States. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. One more note, Gabfesters. When we first released last week's episode, I referenced a tweet in which Ivanka Trump was quoted, allegedly quoted, criticizing Hunter Biden for getting a position through nepotism. That quote, it turns out, was fabricated. I was wrong to read it. We removed it from our episode that same night. And many of you probably heard the nice, clean, corrected version. But for those of you who didn't, I am sorry. Please note that that quote was fabricated and shouldn't have been there to begin with. President Trump, who betrays as easily and as regularly as most people eat snacks, has outdone himself in the Middle East. The president gave a free pass to Turkish President Erdogan, then withdrew U.S. forces stationed with Kurds in northern Syria, allowing Turkey and some of its allies in Syria to invade the north, to rouse Kurds, uh, emboldening Russia, emboldening Bashar Assad, emboldening Iran, releasing a whole bunch of people being held, uh, ISIS people being held by the Kurds. It is a catastrophic turn of events, fully predicted, fully anticipated by everyone who had looked at it. So, John, why did this happen, even though everyone knew what was going to happen if he did it? Why did it happen? I think the, the macro is that the president doesn't like messy U.S. activity and things that are complicated and un, unpleasant. And this is a complicated and unpleasant business. Uh, I think uh, people have also speculated that he has um, business interests in Turkey and therefore has to kind of listen to Erdogan more than uh, – than just a regular old uh, leader of a country. Um, But I think that it fits into his foreign policy worldview, um, which is closer to kind of Rand Paul than Lindsey Graham. And I think he's very impulsive. And so despite all of the guidance for the experts around him saying that what would happen, uh, what has happened would happen, um, he hasn't listened to those advisors and experts on a whole host of things. Um, And so in this instance, uh, he didn't listen either. 
And I, I would just add the second level of, which is a predict, uh, predictable second generation thing that happens in the uh, impulsive presidency, which is that uh, the president does something impulsively. And then in the second stage, uh, you know, the vice president rushes out and said that he didn't do the thing that he just did. So the vice president Pence said that the president didn't uh, give a green light um, to the Turks, Brett McGurk, who ran ISIS policy uh, under Obama, under Trump. And also worked on the surge for George W. Bush um, has been in- boilingly critical of pr- President Trump for whom he worked. And um, and he knows this issue better than anyone in um, mocking the idea that he didn't give a green light. But I think that's also a part of the cascading disaster of these things, which is that, that something happens and then there's a whole effort to claim the thing that happened didn't just happen. Emily, the House voted on Wednesday to rebuke the president for withdrawing troops that included uh, most Republicans voted with Democrats on this rebuke. And yet it doesn't feel as though President Trump is is a going to reverse his policy. Well, he can't reverse it. I suppose it's the policy is done. It's too late. It's too late to reverse it. Right. The, it's out of his hands. Yeah, the, the glass is shattered and is on the floor. Um, but it also doesn't feel that Republicans are going to hold him too much to account for this. Yeah, it, it's pretty amazing to watch the Republicans, you know, vote against him and isolate him in that sense. And some of them, like Graham and Marco Rubio, et cetera, have been critical. But they've been careful to make that criticism less personal in the last few days and not to extend it into other domains, right? I mean, if you really want to uh, condemn Trump over this, Republicans have lots of other levers they can pull. They don't want to do that. They don't like the politics of that, I think, given Trump's high approval rating among Republicans. And they don't want to undermine their own domestic agenda um, or give any tools to the Democrats. And so I think that we're seeing one of the most striking and I would say shocking examples where partisan politics are outweighing any kind of institutional concerns about the foreign policy establishment, the traditional views of the Republican Party on the Middle East and uh, these kinds of interventions, this particular intervention, which had bipartisan support. And then the the prerogatives of Congress, right? The kind of idea that Congress would want to um, have a bigger say here and really try to impact events, that seems to also be going effectively by the wayside. I think there's a recognition implicit in what you're saying, Emily, that that also this is not an issue on which Americans vote. That, yes. That Kurds, it is absolutely true. This is something that, that people in the establishment, people who care about America's interests abroad, people who care about the uh, legitimacy of American diplomacy and the use of American military power um, from a kind of macro perspective care about a lot. But American voters are not up at night worrying about the Kurds, even though it's a tremendous betrayal, it's just a tremendous, embarrassing, shameful betrayal. But but the number of people who will who will stop voting for President Trump because of it is in the you know small handfuls. Although, why are we so sure? I mean, I share your assumptions about that. And yet, why are we so sure of that when we have these stories and images of ISIS prisoners and their relatives escaping? Like, I thought one thing Americans did care about with regards to foreign policy was preventing terrorism. And this is the most direct uh, threat I can see um, 
since 9-11? I mean, it just seems like for an American president to have effectively created the conditions for all of this instability and for actually like freeing ISIS prisoners, that seems like it should be grabbing people by the throat. And I John, think, why do you think conservatives and voters are not losing their minds about this? Well, I think they there is some uh, – some people are losing their minds in part because you have um, – some people who are not the usual suspects being critical. So um, Lindsey Graham is kind of in both camps, but um, he's been highly critical. Um, and, uh, and and so I think that but, – but, you know, the, mostly everybody has stuck behind the president. And, and I think one important thing is to separate means and ends here. Um, uh, let's imagine for a moment that we that, – that you agree with the idea of getting out of foreign intervention in foreign lands. The way in which this was done um, has required U.S. forces to bomb their own ammunition dumps because it was done so hastily um, that the U.S. now is bombing its own ammunition dumps because they don't have the trucks to uh, remove the ammunition because the trucks are busy beating a hasty retreat. Um, the the status of the 50 U.S. nuclear weapons, which are at the Incirlik Air Base in Turkey, is now uh, an open question and um, – and uh, that should make everyone quite nervous. So um, – and by the way, the, as David mentioned, the betrayal of allies, you know, thinking we talked last week about the president's quip that the, the Kurds weren't with America at the, the landing in Normandy and D-Day in 1944. Um, so a couple of things. They were with the U.S. much earlier, um, which is to say they are the more recent allies than um, than Normandy, which is the first thing. And they are being betrayed after they were the solution. Remember in the previous world where um, the U.S. was tired of foreign engagement but knew, as Emily mentioned, that um, there are no walls anymore. Uh, the president this week said, well, they're 7,000 miles away. But the point of 9-11, everybody was supposed to have learned, was that uh, oceans don't protect America anymore. Um, nevertheless, the president is back to that sort of, as David Sanger wrote, the kind of 1930s mindset of the way uh, countries operate together. Um, but there was a period when, uh, because America was war-weary, the Kurds were the answer. And everybody was all for basically having the Kurds do the work. Um, but the idea of the Kurds doing the work and then being betrayed is um, – uh, is I think something people might not be excited about as a political matter, but I generally think that you guys have got it right that people are going to are more concerned about other our other matters. I would just make one other final point, which is that if you are a believer in shrinking America's footprint overseas and the necessity of doing that, when it's done in such a hasty and and disordered manner, which leads to the death of former U.S. allies, you occlude the ability to have an actual debate about where U.S. Uh, foreign policy should take place because it's so calamitous. It it, it obscures your ability to, to actually have the debate you should be having, which is a perfectly fine and reasonable one to have. So even if you're on the president's side in terms of his ends, his means have made a rational conversation about that almost impossible. Well, but but also, John, I would note that, that there's not a consistency there in the sense that President Trump just this week or last week, also put 2,000 yes. U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. Correct, 100%. So, so the 1,000 who may get pulled out of northern Syria are more than made up for by the extra 1,000, the extra 2,000 that are now in Saudi Arabia. So so there isn't a, there isn't a, um, there's not a principle here. There's a series of impulsive decisions, which I think, I do think, Emily, you're right, that he doesn't like the messiness and he doesn't particularly like to have to deal with 
decisions around death and and ugliness. But you're absolutely I also don't right. think he's super guided by principle. One of the questions I have for either of you, but Emily, I'll give it to you first. What is it that President Trump should have done? You had Erdogan, who very much wanted to to clear out northern Syria, to to push away what he perceived as a threat from Kurds and from Kurds who wanted to undermine his government in Turkey in northern Syria. And he was hankering to do it, very eager to do it, planning to do it. What should the U.S. have done to discourage that? I mean, I think they could have, we could have just continued to say to Erdogan, like, no, you don't get to come into this territory. And in some kind of indefinite way, just like hold the status quo. I mean, that would have meant using American troops as a kind of police force. But that's what those thousand troops were doing there. Um, and it seems like they were actually successful in creating quite a bit of stability in a very unstable situation with a small number of people. But if you decide you're going to leave and there were reasons to leave and to think that over the long term, this whole like that it was very shaky, the dynamic between the Kurds, Assad in Syria and Erdogan in Turkey. Okay, then have everyone sit down and do a planned withdrawal and give uh, the Kurds a chance to make an alliance with Assad if that's what they are going to do in a way that's in the interest of American policy as well as preserving stability and just make sure that like all these people don't get killed and left holding the bag uh, in a way that makes us look like we are just completely unreliable and disorganized and gives Russia this opportunity to fill this power vacuum. Trump has said that he's completely untroubled by that, like let Russia come into the neighborhood and fix these problems if it wants as he washes his hands and says it's not our problem at all. But that just seems incredibly short-sighted as a matter of protecting American interests in the medium to long term. And I'm struck as always by the choice of the kind of short term, there won't be a cost with Trump's base he gathers versus like any kind of sense that diplomacy and foreign affairs have medium to long term ripple effects and history is going to judge you based on those questions as well as what happens to your immediate political fortunes. It's just like absent. Here's one way I think that politically uh, some things may be changing and and this argument's been out there for a while which is that some republicans who are never trumpers have said in an effort to convince their former comrades in arms um okay let's stop fighting over the last or the f- first trump term because the trajectory of the presidency has been ever escalating towards new forms of chaos imagine what that would be like over 8 years So the argument is let's stop it at four because it has only gotten crazier when John Kelly, Rex Tillerson and Paul Ryan all say that the most important thing they did during the Trump era was keep the president from doing things. You now see in Syria and Turkey evidence of what happens when he is uh, left to do what whatever he pleases. And then also you could imagine tr- that is true with Ukraine as we learn more and more how the president created essentially parallel foreign policy that was outsourced to Rudy Giuliani and an obsessive hunt for something that uh, career officials say was um, a complete fantasy. Um, that, that if this is the escalating pattern, you don't want four more years of that. I think that with daily 
evidence here um, and some charismatic dissenters uh, could change the political picture that you described, Emily. I don't think it does anything to the people who are who are fully locked into President Trump. Um, but I do think that those, uh, you know, those suburban Republicans um, might be affected by that kind of argument. I want to uh, make a couple of final points and actually ask one question here. What, so one of the things that I think this episode points to, it doesn't explicitly reveal it, but it points at is how effective lobbying and cronyism is with mm-hmm. this administration. That we've seen, and we've seen this with MBS and Jared Kushner around Saudi issues, and now I think we see with Giuliani and Michael Flynn on Turkish issues, where it, lo- it looks, it sort of smells like Flynn was clearly a paid lobbyist for the Turks, was working for the Turks. And it feels like Giuliani, when, when we get deep in this, we're going to discover that Giuliani is either directly or indirectly working for Turkish interests, that, that uh, one of the things that you seem to be able to do with this administration is if you pick the right person who is close to the president, you can kind of get him to do the bidding of of somebody, particularly if that someone is a strong man who is kind of a charismatic strong man. And, and if there are business interests involved, yeah. there's money to be made, right? I mean, that's what we see also with these relationships. Right, right. It is demoralizing to think that there is a that the first thing that's being done is that the, these governments are putting money into that that, it's, that the decisions are not being made in the in greater interest of the United States, but in the interest of some sort of shadowy force and President Trump's financial interests, and that's depressing. That is that's just not how it's supposed to be. That is one kind of obvious point. The second is, I did not realize till I was doing the reading about this that there were these huge camps for ISIS. Well, obviously, ISIS fighters who mostly men who who have been detained and are being held in really pretty dismal conditions, but also uh, wives and children in particular, 70,000 yes. being held in a camp. And I'm not saying that, you know, they didn't make bad life choices, that the wives didn't make bad life choices and that their husbands didn't make bad life choices. Of course, they probably did. But there are tens of thousands of children who are just among the many, many millions of, of refugee victims in this world who are living in these terrible conditions in these camps and can't go anywhere, can't do anything, lives being ruined. And it's just a shame. It's not. I don't have a particular solution about it, but it's just, it's just a shame. You know, this is a slightly different topic, but it's related. One of the other pressures that allowed Erdogan to have domestic support for this invasion yep. in Syria are three million Syrian refugees in Turkey, especially in border towns, but also in Turkish cities. And as Turkish Turkey's unemployment rate rises, and I'm taking much of this from a really good column by Max Fisher in The New York Times – The rising unemployment rate has created domestic unrest about these refugees, and that's part of why Erdogan invaded. And, you know, this is this giant global problem of refugee resettlement in which Western countries that are further away from conflicts like Syria don't do their fair share. And they rely on these poor border countries to absorb the cost and the problem of mass refugee resettlement. And then, of course, that's going to affect domestic political conditions in Turkey. So I just feel like it's important to think about that larger, just unsolved problem that the international order does not cooperate about. I'm going to make one final very quick point, I hope, on just the scorecard here of – of the president and how his impulsivity clashes with the presidency. First, on your point, David, ProPublica did an analysis this week 
when I interviewed the president as a candidate, I asked him if he would not it would not hire lobbyists as president, and he said that he would not hire lobbyists. He's had two hundred and eighty one, which I believe is a record for this um, period in a presidency. So that's a ancillary point. <laughs> ancillary point to your point, which is a, oh my god. A, a, no, I won't do that. <laughs> two hundred and eighty one hires later. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and so that's and and obviously this is the president who talked about draining the swamp. So there's that. In, but two two other related points on the president as a negotiator and a manager. Um, you know, one of the arguments for his candidacy is he was from the business world. He knew how to negotiate. As a manager, what we see here in the disordered presidency is what happens is the president makes an impulsive move, and then everybody has to stop what they're doing and go manage it. Um, and that's not the way, as I understand it from talking to people who are actually in business, um, that's not usually the best way to run a railroad. Um, and secondly, as a matter of negotiating, the, the letter that you referred to in the title of the show this week is a letter the president wrote on the 9th of this month to uh, Erdogan trying to basically keep him from doing what he then went ahead and did. And um, the president is often referred to his gut and his skill for negotiating with other powerful people. And in this instance, it seems to me the president has left him one of two options. Either one, he just opened the door to Erdogan and let him do what he wanted to do. But now that he claims that's not what he did, then it seems implicit in saying, I didn't know he was going to do this, or I didn't give him the green light to do that, is that he was then um, ignorant of the fact that Erdogan was going to do what everybody clearly expected him to do, including everybody in his national security apparatus. So as a negotiator, this is not one of the things that would be in the second um, volume of Art of the Deal. Right. And then we have to say, or I feel like I have to say, this is all taking place against the backdrop of quite extraordinary revelations from various people in the State Department about all the Ukraine shenanigans that are the basis for the impeachment inquiry. And what we're seeing from these officials, I think, is first of all, a decision to uh, defy the White House counsel's order not to comply with these subpoenas. And I think what you see is this undercurrent of incredible frustration and concern from people who've served the country in our diplomatic corps and just feel like like they don't understand how the foreign affairs can be run the way Trump is running them and that they have no choice but to speak out. Hey, listeners, I want to remind you that our annual conundrum show, our favorite live show, is coming up on December 18th in Oakland, California at the Fox Theater. Tickets to that show are at slate.com slash live. And you can also send your conundrums to us by tweeting to us at at SlateGabFest with hashtag conundrum or going to slate.com slash conundrum to submit your conundrums. We've already gotten some amazing conundrums submitted by our audience. So here's one that we may maybe will consider. Would you rather only be able to read books published before you were born or published during your lifetime? Good question. Resurrection or reincarnation, which would you prefer? That is a hard one. That's a really well, hard we, one. We, I do not know that. Go ahead. I was about to respond, but now I, I don't want to. We're going to leave it for the show. Yeah, leave it for the show. Domesticated pets have now become the overlords of the earth. Would you rather be ruled by cats or by dogs? Or maybe by guinea pigs or snakes? Definitely not guinea pigs. I hate guinea pigs. We'll get into it. We, would, we will get into it at the Fox Theater in Oakland, December 18th, slate.com slash live for tickets. Can't wait to see you there. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. 
Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. There was a big Democratic debate in Ohio on Tuesday. By big, I don't mean that it mattered more than other debates. I just mean that there were a lot of people on stage. There were ridiculous 12 candidates on stage, which I think is the biggest number ever for a debate including Tom Steyer, who should be ashamed of himself that he's not putting his $1.6 billion to better use than this self-aggrandizement of his uh, pseudo-presidential campaign. But whatever, he's, he's entitled to do it. It's a free country. Um, John Dickerson, give me two takeaways from that debate. Who won it? It doesn't have to be who won it. Yeah. Give me two takeaways. Uh, well, Elizabeth. The top two Dickersonian takeaways. Elizabeth Warren got the, the front-runner treatment, and there is still nervousness about frontrunner Joe Biden. Emily, so Warren, as John just hinted, had a target on her back the whole night. Notably, uh, the target was, how are you going to pay for your Medicare for all, Senator Warren? What's your sense about how she handled it? Was it in a satisfactory way? Was she she, uh, ducking? Was she deceptive? Was she okay? Uh, I didn't think she handled it great because I do think she's ducking. And I don't really understand this whole situation she's created for herself like if she's going to go all in with bernie then i think she has to go all in and say yeah your taxes are going to go up which is what he is forthright about but i don't understand the politics of getting this far behind medicare for all which is not plausible as something the democrats are going to pass in any short-term way and it seems to me like both Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg have a better handle on the politics and a really good way of talking about this issue. But she rejected that explicitly. And I have been thinking that she's going to figure out some way to kind of walk back from Bernie's version of Medicare for all, which is, you know, in four years replacing our entire healthcare system, as I understand it. But I feel like she's leaving herself less and less wiggle room. And so then if you're going to do that, like admit that it's going to cost all this money. Uh, So that was my feeling about that part of the debate, though I am also really tired of all the airtime this issue is getting in debates when questions like climate change are just not getting asked at all. Right. No climate change. No voting rights. Yeah. Although – what I mean, uh, so agree on that. And then secondarily, that that even though they've spent so much time talking about it, no one has very good answers. Um, one of the things that well, is, she um, doesn't. Do you feel like the rest of them do? I actually feel like the rest uh, of them are not really. Good on this. I don't find I don't find oh. them. Um, I don't. Uh, 
I, I well, let me let me clarify what I mean by not very good answers. First, I think on what you said about Elizabeth Warren, um, I got the I get the feeling it feels like the um, her position on Medicare for all is. Um, it's this is a lot of signaling as much as anything else. So maximalist and not even allowing the possibility that um, there are going to be any costs puts her in a kind of special category as the most of the most um, details, kind of schmeetails in a way. Um, but and 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 the vagueness. I'm all for a little vagueness in um, in campaigning. Because, of course, you need that in the presidency. FDR and and Lincoln in particular were irritatingly vague to their allies, but also to their enemies. You need room to maneuver. But if you're going to be vague, you then also have to be effective, which is to your point, Emily, which is that if you're going to shilly shally and not answer as Bernie Sanders does, which is to say, yes, your taxes will go up. But because you're not paying premiums, your net um, outflows and expenditures on health care costs will actually go down. That's a pretty fast sentence. And that's essentially what Warren is saying. But she does some um, kind of sleights of hand, which make it sound like um, – She's being even she more just vague. doesn't want to say your taxes will go right. up, even if she says in the next breath or the first breath, your costs will go down. But but what I the reason yeah. I, I am focused on effectiveness is that if this is ever going to happen, um, somebody has to make the case for how this is actually going to happen. Bernie Sanders argues that he's going to create a revolution and that'll put so much pressure on the political system that it'll actually happen. Um Okay, that's a you know Barack Obama tried that. The Affordable Care Act had some some troubles because even when he was able to create a political movement, it still couldn't get through the process for a variety of reasons. But moving past that, if Elizabeth Warren is going to create the kind of outside pressure to get this done, she's going to need to be, it seems to me, a more effective advocate for the idea of Medicare for all than merely just assertion politics. And in a primary, of course, that's what you're trying to do. But this this these debates are a chance to get us a look at whether she will be able to sell something to people who are not already in the Medicare for all camp. And I don't that's why I that's why I say no matter how much they've talked about Medicare, the pitch that would actually work in a way that would actually move politics in Washington hasn't felt like to me to be strong enough. That seems uh, fair from her, but I still feel like Buttigieg and Klobuchar and actually Kamala Harris, you know, I forget the details of their plan. The idea that you can have Medicare for all who want it and that what you start with is letting people opt in so they can decide whether this works for them and whether they feel like if it goes well, then like, yeah, you end up with Medicare for all because everybody opts in. But as Buttigieg keeps saying, like you trust people to make choices and kind of right. respect the fact that it's not crazy to fear that this isn't going to go well and to want to see it play out first. Let, let me change the subject here for a second, or maybe for more than a second, because I don't want us to, in our discussion of this debate, replicate the problems of the debate, which was to discuss to Medicare point. for all too much. Joe Biden is the front runner by most or by many measures is the front runner in this race. But he is fading out from this campaign in such a weird way. I expected that he would fade out with a series of kind of really stupid gaffes that would be terribly embarrassing and and would distract attention instead it just seems to be you know uh with with ice not with fire it's meandering slow confused answers it's just a, a kind of unimpressiveness that is a lack of dynamism 
that is going to take him down. Yeah, and it's di- it's dispiriting to watch, right? And it's it's like I mean, sorry, just to, Emily, no, just to fine. finish the point. I mean, I feel like it's it's so Sanders had the heart attack, but it's almost like <laughs> Biden had the heart attack, and it's weird how poorly and how slowly and and weakly he is campaigning. Well, in in the debate, I noticed it on two fronts that seemed like he should have been armed to the teeth with exactly the answer and the delivery. The first was the question about his son, Hunter Biden. Like, of course, they're going to ask that. And he answered it was okay, but not like a home run by any means. And then the same on Syria. He just seemed so weak-kneed in that moment. But he's the one who, like, knows all about this. And, like, he's right that he has sat down with the players and was on the inside of thinking about this in the Obama administration. And so to hear him give some kind of, like, waffly answer about it, like, well, I'd go talk to Assad. And, like, I don't know. It just felt so ineffectual. And that surprised me. Yeah, you know, one of the ways in which Elizabeth Warren is powerful, there people seem to think that she didn't have a great night defending against all the incoming that she was getting. But I, but her argument that basically Democrats succeed when they, you know, put grit and determination behind what they believe, you know, that's the kind of religion you want to sell in a primary. And the Biden rebuttal, which we saw break out into the open in, in, a, in a kind of curious exchange where she was talking about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and Biden said, I got you those votes, was a, a, a little microcosm of the larger fight, which is Warren basically saying, if you have the grit and determination and belief of your convictions, you'll get it to happen. And Biden saying, basically, you got to work in a system and know how to get the votes. If his argument is work in the system and get the votes, the first problem is, A, that system doesn't really exist anymore in the um, in the level of partisanship we have now. Uh, and and since it doesn't, it seems to me that that he's on the incrementalist side with Buttigieg and Klobuchar. And and so if you're going to be the incrementalist, it seems to me you've got to kind of make a somehow make a case. And then, of course, the other thing is, um, you know, against Donald Trump, um, I don't think that 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 the, the Biden responses have it would be, um, you know, it's just not in the same category as what it, what would you would face in the general election. Emily, do you think Buttigieg or Klobuchar is positioned themselves well enough to to be the viable moderate alternative to Warren that Biden is so clearly on the outs. I'm just presuming that probably not true. I'm always wrong about these things, but that Biden is so clearly on the outs that one of them will emerge as a sort of reasonable, more centrist alternative. It would be better if they could be smushed into one person, (laughs) right? Like if you had someone who had the experience of Klobuchar and the track record of winning bipartisan support in, uh, you know, purple Midwestern state. And then you had like Buttigieg's military record and uh, his sharpness on the debate stage and kind of youthful, uh, exciting, bright, shiny object qualities. Like that would be a good candidate. But separately, they both have weaknesses. I mean, Buttigieg has raised a lot of money and he's obviously doing better than Klobuchar in the polls. So I guess he seems like the more viable alternative. But I just wonder whether... Democrats are really going to get behind someone who is the mayor of a pretty small city in the end. Now I'm going to make the pro Joe Biden case that has nothing to do with debates, and it, I think it goes something Ooh, like, "Wow, go it has do it!" Most most controversial thing John will ever say I on am. the show. Bring so, it. so uh, 
it goes, I think it goes something like this. Well, I've been thinking, uh, obviously, a lot about the, the you know, the, the changes in presidencies. Whoever, if the president is not reelected, whoever comes in next, it comes into a different kind of presidency than previous presidents would have come into. And so there is going to be a lot of repair and a lot of um, uh, norm resetting and uh, alliances are going to have to be handled and dealt with. There's just going to be a, a more reclamation work because this president has um, uh, gleefully and self-proclaimedly run a disruptive, chaotic presidency. Perhaps the person who knows where the family heirlooms go when you walk back through after the hurricane has been through, who knows that the vase goes up on the shelf and who knows how to turn on the boiler uh, using the, the you know funny switch in the back is what you want. And that a big full turducken of change and, and reorienting the entire capitalist system may be more than people – are on for. Uh, and I would also argue that was one of the lessons of the Affordable Care Act is that the president talked about um, a lot of different, tried to sell it in a lot of different ways, but people um, liked the idea of helping those without health insurance. But when it came to potentially hurting what they had, they changed their political views. And so the just offering people another big dose of change may not be what people are on for. I, I color me super skeptical of that. I, I think a number of the Democratic candidates would come in and run very tight ship administrations that would restore a lot of the order and would put really smart, oh. capable institutional people in place. But I think Warren would be arguing that. against Thank that. You, really. He's saying that people's impression of big structural change may be like, wait a second, can we just like go back right. to normal? Thank you, Emily. Yeah. Um, Thank you. I, I always have to be on the watch for when I try to speak in someone else's voice that I end up being the advocate of that argument. All right. Last last question on this, Emily, to you. So let let us, for the sake of argument, assume that Warren is the front runner. What should a non-aligned Democrat, a Democrat who really just wants to defeat Trump, what should that non-aligned Democrat wish Warren to be doing in the next few months? And what kind of testing should one wish her to have? The important thing is to continue to seem like she's not standing for the status quo, despite what John just said. She is someone who is going to take seriously the concerns of the American people about how government works, and she's going to fix things. And I think she has positioned herself effectively as that person. Now, I would like her to stick to the popular proposals from Democrats that would have great impact, like Medicare for all who want it to begin with, and move away from the things that are more are just less popular. Like do the stand for the things that you could actually accomplish that are not going to frighten voters away and continue to present yourself as like a beacon for change, which it seems to me pretty clear that she would be. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts, just $35 a year for your first year. You go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. And let us discuss in Slate Plus today Succession, the TV show Succession, the politics of Succession, what you can learn from Succession. Great show. It'll be a fun discussion. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Become a member today. So it's usually enough to have one representative of Yale Law School on the GabFest. But this week, this week, we've got, a, we've got a second one. We're joined by Daniel Markovitz, who's a Yale 
university law school professor, unlike Emily, who's merely a kind of instructor or adjunct or so I don't know what. So good of you to make that clear. It is all <laughs> true and correct. I think you have the higher rank, though, is my, <laughs> Wrong. my view. Uh, well, both of you, both of you clearly have uh, qualify in Daniel's new book as being members of the meritocracy. His new book is The Meritocracy Trap, How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and Devours the Elite. Daniel, don't devour us. Welcome to the GabFest. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I get to ask the first question. You've written this book, which is um, an attack on the meritocracy and a, and really a kind of creed occur about its grave injustices and the ways in which it is hurting people, even as it tries to help them. So are you calling for a system that could be made more fair, or do you think we have to just blow up the whole thing? Is it unsalvageable? I, I think what we have to do is focus on the distinction between what maybe we can call excellence on the one hand and superiority on the other. Um, excellence is skill at doing something well that's worth doing, and superiority is being better than other people at things, whether they're worth doing or not. And we have a kind of competitive meritocracy in which superiority is what counts, getting better grades, working longer hours, being more highly paid or more productive at jobs that are maybe not very socially useful rather than one where excellence is what counts. That is to say figuring out what's worth doing and then give people the training that they need to do it well and create the job opportunities for them to do it in. Actually, before we get further, Daniel, I, Emily um, – unlike a lot of our listeners, has has read your book. But you should explain to, to uh, GapFest listeners what is the meritocracy trap? What is exactly that is happening that is so dangerous? Yeah, good. It, it seems like it's just common sense that people should get ahead based on their own accomplishments rather than, say, their parents' social class. But what's happened as a result of a system in which people get ahead based on their own accomplishments is that certain people, in particular rich people, invest enormous amounts of money in training their children and buying educations for their children that nobody else can afford. And so then rich kids get ahead, whereas everybody else can't keep up. And at the same time, because you get ahead based on your own accomplishments, once you have this fancy education, the only way to get income out of it is constantly to work yourself at jobs that you may not choose but that are very high paying. And so even the elite gets kind of exploited by the system. So what the system does is it excludes everybody else who can't keep up with the training that rich families buy for their children. And then it requires the elite to work in a kind of a sort of unending, pitiless competition and nobody thrives. That's the devouring part. That's the devouring part. Okay. So then you want to replace that system with one that values excellence instead of superiority. And that sounds great. But how does it translate into the real world of college admissions or people getting chosen for certain jobs? Is there a way that we can widen the pool or think differently about how we evaluate people that avoids ranking, that avoids excluding some people and not other people, especially when we're talking about selective college admissions? Right. Sure. So let's take a, a field we both know well, law. And let's compare American law to German law. So here are two big differences between American law and German law. One big difference is that Germany has no – really no private law schools. It has one now. It has no elite law schools. All the law schools are the same as each other. It has no private universities. It has no private schools. What it has is a state system in which 
each institution is really pretty good and none is totally great. And so it trains large numbers of excellent lawyers but no really superior lawyers who get anything like what the training is given by Stanford or Harvard or Yale. So that's on the school side. If you look on the law side, German law is structured in such a way that the difference between a competent lawyer and a superstar lawyer for the client is almost zero. And that has to do with the way in which the German legal system is built. And we can talk about the details if you want, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that you have a system in which once you're competent, you can do everything for your client that your client needs. Being superstar does very little good and the education system trains competent but not superstar lawyers. You have much more equality in the system and the legal system in Germany provides justice much more cheaply and much more accurately than ours does. So there's a concrete case in which what you have is excellence but not superiority. Daniel, was there a period in American um, in American history where people where, – where we did figure out what was worth doing and then train people to do that? Um, and is it remotely possible that, that we could ever get back to such a time because it seems like it would require collective action of a kind that we can't do, you know, get together to even tie our shoelaces? Well, the second part of your question um, applies to almost any policy reform that might improve matters. And, and, and I think actually the kind of inequality that we have and the role of meritocracy in producing it is part of the reason why we can't get ourselves together to collective action. Mm. But on the first part of your question – the period between the end of the Second World War and 1975 or so is a period in which the country massively increased the share of its population that went to college, massively opened up college to groups that had been previously excluded, working middle class people, women and people of color, massively improved the quality of college education without making it much more exclusive, in fact, while making it less exclusive and supplemented college with an elaborate system of workplace training that meant that even people who didn't go to college could get systematic training on the job that would enable them to advance and to end up doing jobs that paid well and gave them substantial independence and dignity at work. So that was a period of real economic justice from the middle to the top of the income distribution. It was also a period of a lot of poverty, which is a separate issue and it's worth focusing on and it's worth not ignoring that there was a lot of poverty then. But once you were out of poverty, life was pretty good in America between 1950 and 1975. Given what you've just described there, Daniel, it occurs to me that if I were thinking about the major public policy responses, I would not necessarily focus on the elite institutions, which are, after all, private. I think the chances that you can get the U.S. government to force them to change their structure or to force them to disgorge their endowments or force them to uh, increase their class size by 100% is that seems like a a real long shot but where there's been huge degradation is in the public higher education system and public secondary education too but public higher education which has been significantly defunded relative to GDP relative to state government budgets over the past generation and that if you want to increase the number of people who have excellence and not superiority, it seems to me like that that making Penn State more affordable, making the Cal University system as good as it was 40 years ago relative to overall universities, that seems to me the best way you could spend money. You, yet I feel like you're focusing more on the elite institutions than on the public institutions. Well, I'm not against doing those things, funding up those institutions. Uh, but I think the focus on private institutions is important for two reasons. One is a political reason and the other is a policy reason. The political reason is that 
the ground, the, the cause of the defunding of the state institutions is that the elites, having been trained up in this way and now working all the time, believe that they deserve their advantage. And because they believe they deserve their advantage, they're much less inclined politically to be willing to pay taxes to fund non-elites in their own educations. And so until you break the elite grip on advantage and on the idea of desert, the politics of redistribution is going to be very hard. On the policy front, um, if you focus not just on the Ivy League but on all private institutions, doubling enrollments in these institutions would immediately increase the expenditure per student in state institutions which could now survive with fewer students teaching them more intensively, first of all. And second of all, politically, I think it is possible to do. You know, the Trump tax reform for the first time put an endowment tax on the richest universities. Um, these universities are so wealthy that the status quo cannot endure. If American university endowments keep growing at the same pace they've been growing at for the past 30 years and household wealth keeps growing at the same pace it's been growing at for the past 30 years, sometime around 2150, 2160, something like that, the 10 richest universities in America will own the entire country. That's not going to happen and they can be made to understand that it's not going to happen and so the, what they need to do is start spending more of their endowment on educating students and they need to start educating a much broader array of students, not just rich kids. I think that's politically feasible in the current environment. And I think even university leadership, if it sees what's going to happen to it, if it doesn't agree to this kind of reform, can be made to buy in. So you have such good answers, I think, for the systemic problems that we're seeing. They're also not achievable immediately, or at least they're hard to achieve. Now, maybe the answer for that is that we need to start making them a real part of the political agenda in this country. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the period of time, you know, from 50 to 75, or maybe 48 to 80, that um, there was the most equality is also the time that Elizabeth Warren and her candidacy kind of harks back to as um, a better deal for Americans. So do you see operationalizing your ideas as a matter of like pushing for the Elizabeth Warren campaign to think more about how it addresses um, private institutions or are we supposed to be doing things individually ourselves in the meantime? Like you and I are leading for you this, you know, kind of unacceptable um, life of teaching these elite students at an elite school. Do we just like keep going and what what's the – answer. Yeah. I mean, on the second point, you know, none of us is innocent and none of us is pure. And um, people do the things they do for a thousand reasons in all walks of life. If we got what we deserved, none of us would escape whipping. And that's, I mean, that seriously. Um, so in that sense, we're all complicit and we're guilty. At the same time, your question points out correctly that an effective change has to be systemic rather than individual. And you start seeing in the Democratic Party, in Elizabeth Warren's campaign, I actually think Pete Buttigieg has some parts of his campaign that see this. Bernie Sanders sees this. But at the moment, too much of the political energy is still focused on identifying villains. Mm -hmm. This connects back to the first thing I said. And on trying to find places at which elites are in one way or another cheating to stay ahead and damage everyone else. And while it's true that there is a lot of elite cheating, there's rent-seeking, there's fraud, there's self-dealing, there are all sorts of forms of misconduct. If I'm right that the 
biggest part of the inequality that we see comes from structural forces and from the rules themselves and in particular from the meritocratic aspect of the rules, then the policies that will be needed to undo it are very different from tightening up anti-fraud laws, trying to produce a fairer competition to get into elite institutions. And they're going to have to look in a way that, that actually dismantles the elite. The liberal response to this kind of inequality is to hitch your wagon to equality of opportunity and to say if we can just have the right mechanism for sorting people, we can make inequality of outcomes okay because there's equality of opportunity. And the lesson of the book in a sentence is that when inequalities of outcome get big enough, equality of opportunity is impossible. And so you have to go after the outcomes directly. Daniel, what stories do we tell each other going all the way back, maybe even some of the stories that came out of that um, golden period before 1975? Because um, when, when you were describing that, you're talking about reframing a, a, a way of looking at something to make sure that the the diagnosis is correct um, so that the prescription can be effective. So what what of the stories that are told about America and American, um, you know, whether it's Horatio Alger or anything else that 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 lock us into the wrong worldview and therefore therefore the wrong diagnosis? And is there a better story that America should tell itself? I mean, I think that the key story is one of social mobility which, of course, the data suggests we don't have compared to other rich countries. Social mobility in this country is maybe a third what it is in a country like Denmark. And also the idea that people who work hard and are incredibly productive deserve to get paid a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, So that if one wants to argue that someone shouldn't get paid as much as she gets paid, that a CEO gets paid more than she should be paid – one has to argue that somehow they're not being productive and one has to undermine the idea that they're hardworking and productive people. Whereas I think a better account is there are all kinds of skills in the world that are incredibly productive in our world but the only reason they're so productive is that our world is very unequal. So if you want a, a concrete example, I have a friend. I was once in a field with her. She was throwing a boomerang and uh, there was another guy with us who was a sociobiologist and he looked at her and he said, in a society of hunter-gatherers, you would be a gatherer. And the reason he said that is that she was terrible at throwing boomerangs. <laughs> in, in our society, she has a set of skills that makes her an incredibly highly paid, incredibly high-status person. But those skills are valuable only because we lead lives in a very unequal society. She has the ability to hedge risks. She has the ability to manage lots of other people. If we had an equal society, those skills wouldn't be so valuable. And so the point is it's not true that she's committing fraud to get her high pay. But it is true that she doesn't deserve her pay because the structure that makes her productive is a structure we should reject, which is a hierarchical and unequal structure. I think that's an argument that's important to try to to drive home uh, as much as possible. Daniel, actually, can you talk for a second, and I'm not sure if you address this in the book or not, about CEO pay, which is a kind of for me, a paradigmatic example of of where this has gone so cockeyed, whereby CEOs now get these enormous multiples of what average workers get. And in part, they get it because they're measured against the, the, the way compensation committees struct, are structured at most big companies is you look at what comparable CEOs are paid, and then you have to pay your CEO to match that. And therefore, it, it's a constant escalator up because you, one person gets a little bit more. And so now the the, the bar, the, the match is, needs to be higher. And, and yet, 
all these people are replaceable. You could bring in somebody who was a vice president who was making a tenth of what the CEO is doing, and that person would do a pretty good job, would do 90% as good a job, and and maybe 98% as good a job. But yet that, that uh, compensation keeps going up and up. Yeah, let me – that's a great example uh, because I have a slightly different view actually about the CEO pay. And I think it illustrates very well the difference between the kind of view I'm arguing and a more traditional left view. So the traditional view is exactly the one you give, which is the CEOs are, are overpaid in the technical sense that they're paid more than they're worth and that the reason they're overpaid is that they control compensation committees and effectively set their own salary. There's a problem with that view, which is that when private equity firms take companies private, CEO pay does not go down. And the people who run private equity firms are not altruists. They don't pay a penny more than it's worth it to them to pay. And that suggests that they believe that the CEO is in fact worth more than she is being paid. So how could that be possible? Well, the story the book tells is that management has been fundamentally restructured in American corporations. Fifty years ago, management was dispersed across all of a company's employees. There were layers and layers of middle managers and even line production workers were in effect managers because they were lifetime employees and they were charged as it were with managing their own human capital and skills for the good of the firm. And when the management function is dispersed across the firm, what that means is that all of the workers get a share of the economic returns to management. And everybody gets paid more because everyone's partly a manager and the super manager at the top is not that valuable to the firm because on the one hand, the firm will run itself without him and on the other hand, he can't shift the firm very much because there are all these other managers who are controlling it in his place. From about 1980 onwards, the management function has been stripped from everybody except elite executives who now run the firm effectively like a dictatorship. And that means that they capture all the returns to management and also that if they're good managers, they're incredibly valuable. So there's a sense in which their returns are matched by their value to the firm. Now, I can talk about why that happened and how that happened. But the important thing to see is we don't need a story about CEO fraud or rent-seeking to explain why the old view mm-hmm. when management is spread across the firm – employees are better paid, employees have more control over their work and their firm, is a better, fairer way of running things than the current system. And that's the kind of argument that I think is really important to understand. That pattern has happened all across the economy. And that's the pattern that needs to be unwound. In politics, we've had the same thing, basically. Everything used to have dispersed management throughout all bra- through at least Congress and the presidency. And now it basically all just goes to the presidency, except the way they define the job, you can't be a good manager. But uh, so so how did that happen real quickly? And then the second thing is just to hit on another point you've said before, but it seems like what you're saying is we don't need to demonize the people who have succeeded in this particular structure in the moment. They're not necessarily bad people, which is the way stuff gets framed in politics of the moment. It's that a structure exists. And then, in fact, to, to demonize them is to stay blind to the larger structural shift that you're talking about making. So, so the second point is really important, which is that when you demonize the people at the top, it's not just that you blame the people at the top, which may be deserving in some, in some cases. It's also that you disguise, you, you close your eyes to the structure. And, and if I'm right that the structure is much more important than the wrongdoing, you then close your eyes to what's really important. Now, how did this happen in management? Well, there were two kinds of developments. Um, one development was 
elite education and elite business school education really got going and created a new class of managerial workers. The managers at mid-century were largely lazy and not particularly well-educated. And they couldn't do what, say, Jamie Dimon does at, at uh, J.P. Morgan today. They also wouldn't have been willing to work the hours that the managers are willing to work today. So you created a class of labor that could run the firm in this way. And then at the same time, a series of managerial technologies were invented that gave stockholders and others an incentive to replace the old style of management with the new style. So the market for corporate control, which was invented by elite lawyers, the leveraged buyout, which was invented by elite lawyers, made it possible for shareholders to give incentives to elite managers and make them into profit drivers for the firm, but not possible for them to incentivize any other workers. So suddenly there was a big incentive for owners to come in, kick out old managers, put in place new managers who wanted to manage on the new style, who would then eliminate middle management from the firm. Management consultants had a big role to play in this too. If you look at the sort of internal history of McKinsey and BCG, you can see that they sold this style of management. And of course, the attack on unions had a big part to play in this because the union was basically a way of making production workers into management. And that was very important for union wages. So all those things happened and transformed the management of the firm to get what we have now, to move from an, une from an equal to an unequal structure. Um, and again, we could tell the same story in retail. We could tell the same story in manufacturing. We could tell the same story in finance. This is true pervasively across the economy. And that's the biggest driver of inequality today. Go get the meritocracy trap, how America's foundational myth feeds inequality, dismantles the middle class and devours the elite by Daniel Markovitz. And then feel really bad about your place in the meritocracy if you have a place in the meritocracy. No, and then feel armed to address it. Right, David that's Plus. what I meant. Not, armed to address it. Armed to address it. Do not armed whip to address it. People. <laughs> well, well, thank you in either in either case, and I would say uh, then feel like you see things the way they actually are. Oh, Thanks very much. Very nice. Oh, there I we like go. That. That's the wrap. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. I'm really grateful. Be Thanks well. a lot, Daniel. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you, Emily Bazelon, are in a elegant New Haven pub of the sort that you only have in New Haven, the bright lights of New Haven with your beautiful wood wooden pubs. What will you be chattering about? I don't even know what I'm talking I know, about. You I was really just, don't. I was just talking. I, I just started a sentence. Didn't nice, know how to finish it. We do have excellent pubs here. Uh, I am so struck this week by a story in the New York Times about the state of Ohio and its efforts to purge 235,000 oh voters, even though 40,000 of those people were on this list as false positives. In other words, they should not have been on the list. So to back up a step, last year, I feel like I talked a lot on the GabFest about a Supreme Court decision five to four that allowed for this purge to take place. Basically, Ohio wants to kick people off the voting rolls if they haven't voted in six years and they don't respond to one postcard from the state saying, hey, you need to go renew your voter registration. That's not a whole lot of notice. It looked really questionable about whether it was in line with federal law. The Supreme Court said, no worries, Ohio, go ahead. 
the state puts this list together, apparently doesn't itself do a whole lot of checking for false positives, but does take one positive step, which is to release the list so that voting groups could start checking it. And then some volunteers, including this one guy, Steve Tingley Hawk, who runs a watchdog group out of his, like, House with almost no money. It's called the Ohio Voter Project. He seems to personally have been responsible for finding thousands of people who are on these voter rolls, even though they had voted very recently. This is just crazy. Like, it just suggests that the state is much more prone to kicking people off the rolls than to worrying about disenfranchising people. And I guess the larger point I want to make about this is that purges of voter rolls are so important to watch out for. They've been shown to have a greater impact on participation in voting than voter ID laws, but they've gotten much less attention. And what Ohio is doing, other states are starting to talk about or actually do this as well. States like Florida in the past have accidentally or wrongly purged thousands of people. And those states have not opened up their purge lists for uh, groups to double check. So I you know, I think what we're seeing here is like one more effort of disenfranchisement and then to realize how many people are getting kicked off the rolls without cause is really amazing. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? My uh, chatter is about um I think this is how you pronounce his name, uh Ilayad Kipchoge. Uh and he Broke the record um, for a two-hour marathon. So that's 26.2 miles in an average pace of four minutes and 35 seconds a mile. Um, It's it's so unbelievable. And so this is basically, I think, the equivalent or maybe even more than the equivalent of Roger Bannister's breaking the four-minute mile. Um, But what what fascinated me about it is all of the science and work that had to go into – pulling off this epic achievement. I mean, first of all, obviously he has a physical body and training regimen that is um, that is exceptional. But since June, um, the various people working on this project have been in Vienna, which they picked because of its weather and its flat topography. Um, but they then um, worked on it for, you know, there were, I think they p- came up with 15 different routes that he might possibly go depending on the weather. They had these runners go along with him who were setting his pace, but also then they were in kind of an averted, uh, inverted V so that they would break the wind. And then water was delivered to him on bicycle, which apparently is for some reason it, it um, puts an asterisk by his achievement because somehow for it to be fully amazing, he would have had to have gone to go get the water himself from like a little table uh, on the side of the route. But anyway, it's just this amazing um, achievement has been accomplished. And Wired has a good piece about it. And there are a few other really good um, articles about it and how it was how it was done and all of the the people who worked on it. You should go check them out. Can I just add that Kenya's Bridget Koski, if I'm saying her name correctly, also shattered the women's marathon world record by more than a minute last weekend by winning the Chicago Marathon. Yes, there's uh, I strongly recommend there's a great hang up and listen segment about both of the these incredible achievements. I would note that Kipchoge's is not a world record, though, because it was done with all these artificial benefits. And, it is not and does not in any sense diminish the extraordinary, extraordinary achievement of it, but it doesn't count officially, whereas the women's record was right. smashed in a in a spectacular fashion. 
the the hang up and listen segment is really really great if you get a chance to listen my chatter is about a story i saw in the american prospect by amanda frost who's a law professor at american university and it's about the war on naturalized citizens so among the many abominations that stephen miller and the president are committing towards immigrants and legal immigrants we now add an attack on people who were once immigrants who have now become Americans. The administration is now spending $200 million. They've hired 300 agents to investigate people who are naturalized and to open up 700,000 cases, the case of 700,000 people who have been naturalized in recent years to seek to search for errors or other reasons why they might not have been naturalized in a, in a perfectly I's dotted, T's crossed way so that they can denaturalize them. It turns out there's no statute of limitation on denaturalizing someone. So someone may have been naturalized decades ago, and the administration now plans to go after them and try to denaturalize them by the thousands. To get a sense of what the scale of this is normally like, in a typical year over the past 20 years, we have denaturalized 11 people a year. And now they want to do this to thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And it's almost always for something... It's not that it's not that these people were, you know, hadn't done something wrong in the process of being naturalized. Some of them entered the United States under a false name, or they got, you know, there was something that they did at some point in the process, but had gone through a naturalization process, and that had all been cleared and accepted. And now the Trump administration wants to go out and root out mistakes that were made in the process and drive these people out of the country where they've made a home. It's absolutely disgusting and wrong, and brings terror to people who have made themselves American. And it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. Anyway, Amanda Frost's piece in The American Prospect. Listeners, you have been sending us great chatters this week, as in every week. You've been tweeting them to us at, at SlateGabFest. And this week, from at Spoko Spoko, or Spocko Spocko, not sure how you pronounce that, Spoko Spoko or Spocko Spocko. Spoko Spoko uh, refers us to another podcast, which is... Uh, Reply All, which is a wonderful, wonderful podcast, did an episode about feral hogs, and it came out of the there was a kind of a Twitter foufra some months ago about feral hogs and people talking about feral hogs overrunning their garden. And Reply All went and dug into what's the deal with feral hogs in rural America. And Spoko Spoko says it's a crazy, amazing story, and it's and I'm going to go listen to it right after this show. My next that will be my next podcast. That's our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Jocelyn is with me here in Washington, which is so nice. Jocelyn's now waving at me from outside the studio. And our researcher is Bridget Dunlap, who is not with me here in Washington, but she's in Chicago somewhere, I think. Hi, Bridget. Uh, Melissa Kaplan helped engineer here in D.C. Ryan McAvoy, I assume, helped you in New Haven. And Alan Pang helped John in New York. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGapFest. We chatter to us. And please come to our Conundrum live show in Oakland, California on Wednesday, December 18th. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that. And also please tweet conundrums to us at at SlateGabFest using hashtag conundrum or go to slate.com slash conundrum to uh, give us a conundrum there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Slate Plus, I know you. You spent Sunday evening watching the succession finale. 
or maybe you watched it on Monday because you were busy on Sunday night, but you made sure to watch it. Can we just say big spoiler yeah. alert right yeah. now? Turn this off if you have not watched the finale and don't want to know right. what happened. Oh, and before we get into Slate Plus, I should mention that John had to step away to go finalize his first 60 Minutes piece. So it's just going to be me and Emily in Slate Plus today. So if you watched Succession, you almost certainly have watched the finale because it's it was too exciting to hold back. So you've probably watched it by now if you were a Succession watcher. And if you don't watch Succession, you probably don't care. So you're probably not listening anyway. But if you are a Succession watcher who somehow has not seen it, definitely turn this off because we're going to spoil the hell out of it. Just save it. Yeah. And, and listen to us later. Or listen to other Slate podcasts about Succession. There's a great Succession All recap All right podcast. already. No, they should listen to us. Okay. Or listen to us. Fine. Whatever. Um, so, uh, Emily, uh, totally addicting show, <laughs> uh, really fun to watch. It has been one of the high points of my, my late summer and fall has been watching Succession. Uh, why, why did you, why are you so excited for us to talk about it? What does it have to do with what we know about and what we're expert in? Well, honestly, I've had this weird feeling since this show started, but especially this season that there is some cosmic connection between all the things going wrong in American politics and media and all the things going wrong on this show. So I have some feeling that maybe now that it's over, like the disorder and chaos will – it's like a fever will break in America, though obviously this week is like the opposite of that. So I, I have the opposite of evidence for my notion. I think there is – a many, many like surface level ways in which the show is telling us something about Rupert Murdoch's media empire and about, you know, kind of elite control over American um, viewing habits and who's behind them and the kind of lack of principle. It, it feels real to me whether exactly it is or not. And then, you know, you have these moments like this week in which there was news that one of the Murdochs bought an interest in Vice Media, which was an idea that the that Succession had spoofed earlier in the season. And it really does feel like reality imitating art. Yeah, I think those are really good points. I, The world in Succession is a world without love or kindness or trust. There's only cruelty. There's only betrayal. There's only narcissism. No, but no one. There's no joy in anything. No one ever has sex. No one ever eats anything with pleasure. No one takes pleasure in anything. It is. It is. It is a purely. It's the world of all against all. It's like the the Hobbesian the Hobbesian uh, state of nature. Right. They feel momentary glee at humiliating and mocking each other. Right. And and that is that is extremely evocative of how you imagine Trump lives. Um, and, and it has elements of how the world is, what the world is like today. And, it, and it's interesting to kind of see this picture of what is, what is it like to live in a world without love or kindness or trust. And it is in no sense the world that I want to live in. It's no sense the world that I feel I do live in. And, but I don't know why that's so – why is it so pleasurable to watch people be so cruel in so, so many I ways. Have, here's my theory about this because I normally hate any kind of entertainment in which there's no one to love or root for. I think there's something liberating in this show about how there's no one whose fate you care a great deal about. And so I feel so little emotional investment in what is going to happen to the characters. 
Normally, that's a bad thing. But I think, first of all, in this political moment, it's kind of a relief to just feel like you're watching people and not having some deep sense of like, oh, my God, something terrible is happening. And the second thing is it's very funny. I mean, it is just mordantly funny. And the dialogue is written in this like way over the top cleverness set of lines that just like gives you – like, you have to pay attention the whole time just for those moments, and I think that also has a kind of delectable quality to it. Right. Well, so it comes out of the there's this sort of family tree of In in the Loop, this British show, Armando Iannucci show, yes. and then I think Veep spins off of that, and I, I believe I am right when I say that the succession showrunner – uh, Jesse Armstrong comes out of that universe, so that you and it also is an Adam McKay production too, right? So it reminds me a little bit of his of The Big Short, right? Um, but the, but these these each of these has gotten successively more and more and more vicious and dark. I mean, it's not unlike it is not unlike the world of Veep, but right. it is much darker and less. I mean, it's it's funny. Well, it's it's drama, as funny, not sitcom, yeah. right? So it has like that additional layer I, maybe. one of the things i think that's quite brilliant about it and i i don't know how to i don't know why it does this is that it produces archetypes really well that you start to think of people as oh that person's a shiv that person's a roman that person's a kendall that person's a connor that that <laughs> although you really don't want to meet any of those people no, in real life except maybe greg and not even <laughs> a cousin greg yeah. yeah no i mean he is my favorite character, partly just because he's such a shambolic mess, but also because if there is any sense of not morality, but just like reality check on the show. Gabfest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash Gabfest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 